John 2, verses 13 to 25. Hear God's word for us this morning. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. You may sit down. Down through human history, there have been any number of attempts to form an ideal society. The church has attempted to do the same from time to time. The Puritans wanted to purify the church and in New England to establish a pure or even idyllic religious society. The reformers aimed at reforming the church back to its biblical shape and framework. Secular society has also witnessed its attempts to form a ideal society, a utopia. Perhaps the most famous of these attempts is Marxism. But there have been many others of similar kind. Uh, For instance, the levelers, a 17th century movement who attempted to try and create a level society where everyone earned the same, everyone had the same land, everyone had the same status. They wanted level. They were the levelers. It's tempting to think the best commentary in all such desires at human utopia is the meaning of the word utopia itself. 
It was first coined by Sir Thomas More in 1516, and the word utopia means literally no place. And Thomas More created this word uh, and wrote the book of which, uh, which made the word famous to show that such idyllic societies are, practically speaking, impossible. Here, though, in the Bible, we find Jesus vigorously reforming the temple. What are we to learn from his example? In our day, there are many people who want to change the world. Is Jesus attempting to change the world? Is he trying to create a utopian religious society? trying to remove the uh, distinction between the 99% and the 1%? Is he trying to remove all the racial inequalities in his day? First, I think we can learn from his Reformation zeal. Look with me at verses 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is not an unreasonable rebel. He's going up to Jerusalem along with all the crowds to celebrate Passover. But then in the temple, verse 14, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. It must have created quite a mess. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Presumably it was too difficult to get all the pigeons to sort of individually flap their way out, so he had to ask those who owned the pigeons in their cages to remove them. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Reformation, zeal. So he goes up to Passover, fulfilling the duties of a pious Jew at the time, submitting to all God's law so that he can be a righteous sacrifice for our sins when he dies on the cross. He, he does everything right so that he is the perfect son of God that we are not, so that when he dies on the cross, his righteousness may be ours. He submits to the law at the time. He goes up to Passover, but then he gets to the temple. He's in the outer court, the Gentile court. This is a huge area. It would have um, taken up several football fields. And it's the first of two occasions when he cleanses the temple. The second occurring uh, towards the end of his ministry, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. 
And this outer court, this huge area, is filled with people selling the, the sacrificial animals as well as changing money from the pagan coins of the Romans and other countries to the only acceptable coin of the Jewish temple, the half shekel. The, the Jews would not allow any other coin with any image of any other god to be allowed in the temple. And so there are money changers. We know from the later accounts in the other Gospels that this trade was robbery. That is, it was sharp business practice, uh, making unreasonably amounts of money out of a monopoly. But what makes this so offensive to Jesus is not the money. It is that it is targeted in the Gentile courts, at the outsider, the God-fearer, the seeker. The temple is intended to be the place where all nations could access the presence of God, but had become a place where the nations were being prevented from easily gaining access to God. In other words, it was, in effect, destroying the very purpose of the temple. They had made, Jesus said, my father's house, a house of trade. So Jesus here, the divine son of God, is sensed by the offense against God, his father's house. He doesn't say our father's house. He stands there as the son of God and says, my father's house. Whereas the house of God was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, as uh, the other accounts and the other three Gospels put it, it had become a house of trade, making money out of making it difficult for all nations. Seekers, God-fearers, outsiders to access the presence of God. It would be a bit like if uh, at church we decided that it was a rule that in order to be in this place together, you had to wear a certain kind of special religious garment. And in our great graciousness, realizing that not everyone outside would be aware of this stipulation, we put outside of the, uh, the, the sanctuary space in the narthex in the corridor a whole set of booths selling such special religious garments at, well, quite good prices. Why not? Of course, the effect of such practice would be to make it very difficult for the outsider, the seeker, to come and join us worshiping God. Reformation zeal. The disciples, remember the text, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, they could have remembered many other texts. Micah tells us that uh, suddenly he will make an appearance in the temple, and who can stand his appearing? Now, it is important, isn't it, that we contrast this zeal for worship on the part of Jesus with the attitude of so many of us, I'm afraid, today. And contemporary culture, and even in the contemporary church. 
Sometimes it is joked that uh, these days we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Contrast Jesus' zeal for the house of God. We make worship about us, not about God, about our desires, not about providing space for all nations to meet with God. Now, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. So, anger is a dangerous emotion, but it is not always a wrong emotion, not always wrong to have such zeal. said that Martin Luther would remark that he never wrote well or preached well unless he was angry. And if we are to have zeal for anything, it is that our worship be orientated around Christ, not our personal preferences or our individual desires. And so open to those from all nations to enter the, pro- the presence of God. Aram Gandhi, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, when he was with his grandfather for a season being trained and mentored, says that Gandhi noticed his anger and said that that anger was fuel for change. Well, Jesus here certainly had anger. It was anger that God's house was being used to prevent all nations from accessing the presence of God rather than as a vehicle for all nations to access the presence of God. The outsider, the seeker, the disadvantaged are the races, the broken, and the bleeding. We don't want their kind around here. In many ways, I think the best um, example in fairly recent church history of a man who understood the importance of this and decided to take a stand to prevent it is uh, D.L. Moody. Uh, No relation, by the way. Uh, D.L. Moody, when he was beginning his ministry in downtown Chicago, had, of course, his Sunday school, and then there was a church. He put up outside of the the building uh, a sign prominent sign, and uh, it said on it the following, ever welcome to this house of God are the strangers and the poor. And then he added a sentence that doesn't compute because there was different cultural context at the time, he said this, all seats are free. The reason for that was there'd been a legacy right back from the Puritans to build churches by actually selling pews to families. And so people would come to church and very literally someone would say, that's my pew, because in a sense it was. They bought it. D.L. Moody said, all seats are free. It's God's house. 
and therefore ever welcome here are the strangers and the poor. Reformation zeal. But that's not all that is in this passage. Uh, Look with me at verses 18 to 22. There is also resurrection power. So the Jews said to him, by the way, every time in John's gospel you see a phrase like this, the Jews said, you're not to think that John has been anti-Semitic. Nothing could be a more ridiculous interpretation. John, of course, himself was a Jew, as was Jesus, as were the disciples. When he talks of the Jews, he means the Jewish leaders or the Jews who were in opposition to, to Christ. So the Jews or the Jewish leaders at the time said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, which must have shocked them. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They're, they're talking of Herod's, uh, the temple of Herod, of course. And will you raise it up in three days? And so that we are not confused by it, John gives us the interpretation. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, here's what's going on here. The people who observe what Jesus did, of course, want to know where he gets the authority to do this, and they want a sign to prove that he has such authority. There he is. He's this huge area. He's appeared in power and authority and driven these people out. There's a huge chaos with money on the floor and sheep and oxen scattered. Where on earth, who on earth do you think you are? How are you going to prove to us that you have that kind of authority? And uh, ironically enough, the sign is in the very cleansing of the temple. Suddenly he will appear. And who can stand the, the, his coming to the temple? Zeal for your house will consume me. So follow the logic of Jesus' reply. Destroy this temple and three days later I will raise it up. Well, they're confused, and John, the author of the gospel, then explains that Jesus means his body that will die on the cross and with resurrection power be raised three days later. So the sign of the authority that Jesus has will be proved by the culmination of this act, which is Jesus' death and resurrection, which demonstrated, or as Paul puts it, justified his victory over death and glorified him as God, as the incarnate Son of God. And so when he's raised from the dead, the disciples understood and believed. Let me explain it this way. Uh, When our children were younger, of course, a lot of our family is back across the Atlantic, and there'd be phone calls going backwards and forwards as we spoke to grandfather and grandma and grandpa, that kind of thing. And uh, speaking on the phone to a a two-year-old, if you've ever had the privilege of doing such a thing, is not the most exciting experience in the world. They they don't get who they're speaking to, you know. And so uh, sometimes our children would have a little toy phone and they'd carry it around, a little thing, and sort of pretend to speak. And then when grandma and grandpa spoke on the phone, perhaps they'd be able to get out a sentence maybe or something, right? And of course, as they got, got older, then the time comes for them to have their own phone. And... 
they use it to text or speak to their, their friends and uh, family. Similarly, the temple was never actually the temple. The temple was designed to train God's people with the holiness of God, the necessity of sacrifice to enter God's presence because we are sinners. But the temple was never actually the temple. The temple was always a sign of the real temple which now stood before them. Jesus himself. See, a temple is all about accessing the presence of God. And Jesus is saying the presence of God is accessed through him and him alone. Which is why we Christians elsewhere in the Bible are called a temple of the Holy Spirit. For we have Christ's spirit within us. It's why Paul says later, compares the church to the temple. That is a temple in the, of the Lord. We're being built together into a dwelling for God by his spirit. It is through Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection power that we're able to enter the presence of God. The temple is Christ. It's so important we grasp this necessity for not just Reformation zeal but also resurrection power. For Reformation zeal without resurrection power will become at best a lifeless and pointless change and at worst will lead to infertile death, a mere skeleton without any life and vitality. These days in the church, we have some very vibrant movements for neo-Calvinistic, young, restless, and reformed kind of reformation. It's all very good, and we support it and think it's wonderful. But if such movements rely on merely argument and only zeal, they will fail. We need spiritual power. Perhaps the uh, greatest... Uh, historian of the Reformation, uh, a, a man called D'Aubigny, put it like this in 1871. He said this, one portion of the Reformation was to seek the alliance of the world and in this alliance find a destruction full of desolation. Another portion, looking up to God, was haughtily to reject the arm of the flesh and by this very act of faith, Seize a noble victory. It's not enough merely to have zeal to change structures. You, you need the presence of Christ and his reformation power by his spirit. College students, you who want to change the world, we must not only reform the church, not only seek justice in the world, we must also proclaim the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. We need spiritual power. Parents, our goal is not only to modify the obedience of our children to acceptable levels so they do not embarrass us or do not embarrass us much, but to introduce them to Christ 
who will shepherd their hearts by His resurrection power. You know, if I had one commonality between the uh, people I come across in their 20s who grew up in godly, Christ-honoring homes, but themselves are struggling with their faith, it would be that they have grasped the externals of Reformation structure, but have not had their hearts inclined to the spiritual presence of Christ Himself and His resurrection power. Older generation, whatever you think is happening in contemporary culture, Because of Christ's resurrection, your gospel labors, your discipleship, your mentoring, your ongoing evangelism are not in vain and will receive an eternal reward. So you keep on going. You don't slide off towards the end of your life. You keep on going for there is a resurrection to come and all those gospel labors will have their due reward. Reformation zeal, resurrection power. But look with me finally at verses 23 to 25. There is an element here that is in many ways the most important. Jesus is realistic about people. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, some have said that Jesus did not entrust himself to these people because their faith in him was not genuine. There was something lacking in their faith. They weren't real disciples. They were fake or pseudo-disciples. And so, though they looked good on the outside, Jesus knew that really they weren't trusting him, and therefore he kept them at a distance. But the phrase, believed in his name mirrors the phrase that John uses to express the goal of this book, that is, that by believing in his name, we might have life and life to the full. So I think it is unlikely that that is what is going on, for they did believe in his name. They were real disciples, and, and they were on the, on, on the path. They believed in his name, which is exactly what John is hoping that the readers of his book would do too. They believed in his name. No, I think instead Jesus models for us the difference between trusting people and entrusting yourself to people. The difference between loving people and being a people pleaser. The difference between serving people and making an idol of people. And the difference between building the church and striving for a utopian ideal. Here is the doctrine of man as fallen. 
And if we are to follow Christ in his example here, we need to keep this truth about who we are clear in our minds. Without it, all our efforts at evangelism, church planting, kingdom expansion will be likely to lead to disappointment and failure because we will have set ourselves unrealistic expectations. So many examples of this down through the church. Perhaps one of the best is of a very vibrant movement in the 19th century that was filled with enthusiasm and energy among college students at the time. And um, riding the crest of the wave of this sort of mass popular movement across the universities, they decided they would set themselves a new big goal. And that new big goal was going to be the evangelization of the world in this generation. But of course, the Bible promises no such thing. The way is narrow, and few are on it. But having set themselves such an unrealistic goal and therefore sort of built into the structure of their movement, these these set of unrealistic expectations, well, of course, what happened was they needed to meet those goals and satisfy those expectations psychologically as well as institutionally. And so they began to redefine what it meant to evangelize and redefine what it meant to be, you know, reaching the whole world. And, And before too long, the whole doctrinal structure of that movement had caved in. All those of us who want to be reformers must also be realistic about people or we will become disillusioned and burn out eventually. Of course, that's part of the challenge of church, isn't it, for all of us, that we have such high ideals of each other. We're Christians and therefore we should behave like Christians and then we discover at some point that sometimes Christians don't behave like Christians. This is why the Bible urges us to let love cover over a multitude of sins because in any healthy church, it's going to need to do a lot of covering. The same is true about our marriages. You know, I've been in many, many conversations with people with difficulties in their marriages and read all the books on this sort of, not all, the many of the books on this sort of thing. And, but the bottom line about marriage is the most difficult thing about marriage is that you are marrying a sinner. And so are they. And so you must actively forgive and actively offer forgiveness. Otherwise, you won't last very long. By God's grace, we are transformed increasingly into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another, but our hidden faults and errors, hard to discern, will remain. This side of glory, we will not reach perfection. No, the disciples' failings must not prevent us from trusting in the Master's graces. A good example of this comes from one lesser-known Puritan called Samuel Ward. He kept a journal. 
And in 1595, August the 8th, he confessed something to his journal. It was his longing after plums when I made a vow not to eat in the orchard. Oh, that I could so long after God's grace. But I'm afraid just a week later, August the 13th, he confessed again, my intemperate eating of plums. Also, my intemperate eating of cheese after supper. Well, I'm afraid uh, Samuel Ward, it appears, eventually gave in to his love of plums. After 1608, he became chaplain to the Bishop of Bath and Wells, Master of Sydney Sussex College, Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity, Prebendary at Wells, a rector, a canon, a rector again, and a royal chaplain, all at the same time. In other words, he had collected a lucrative religious cluster of non-executive paid directorships. And he stopped, stopped keeping a journal. And perhaps someone has let you down. A disciple of Christ has let you down. Perhaps you're disappointed whenever you hear about the prosperity gospel and the shenanigans that go on there. Perhaps you're disappointed when you hear about some religious leader who has fallen Remember that Christ knew what was in man. When the uh, great Lloyd-Jones, later in his career, great preacher, modern Lloyd-Jones, later in his career, proposed an interpretation of the Bible that many uh, could not agree with, Oliver Barclay, who was uh, then the head of InterVarsity, commented that he thought this was actually a good thing. He said, in my own view, Lloyd-Jones's, to many people, impossible exegesis of the sealing of the Spirit was a real blessing. For after that, people did not follow him so slavishly, but judged whether he was truly expounding the Bible. It broke a near idolatry of the man and did no harm. Maybe this is why the Lord allows eminent disciples to have their feet of clay exposed from time to time. He knows the heart, but we do not, and He allows us, as it were, a peek into the frailties of our heroes, so we do not worship them. Do not then assume that the people you love will not let you down. Instead, place your ultimate faith, your worshipping faith, your God-sized faith in the only reliable receptacle for such faith, that is, God Himself. And from that place of security, reach out in human size faith and love to those around you. I like the Calvin and Hobbes 
cartoon. In one of those cartoons, um, Calvin says to Hobbes, um, I thrive on change. And uh, Hobbes says, you? You threw a fit when just this morning your mum put less jelly on your toast than yesterday? And Calvin replies, I thrive on making other people change. (laughs) Such is the curse of every reformer. Yes, we need Reformation zeal, but we also need resurrection power. And in order to keep going until the end and not give up and not give up and not give up and not give up, we need to be realistic about people. We will not in this world create a utopian ideal, but we may build the church. And against that, the gates of hell will not prevail. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come now to this, your table, would you help us by your Spirit to behold the Lamb of God? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.